Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Zandi, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm joined by my two trusty co-hosts, Chris Dorides and Marissa Di Natale. Hi, guys. Hi, Mark. Good morning, Mark. What's going on? Uh, no, the usual. Uh, stress testing stress. So Yeah. Yeah, the stress tests are underway. Uh, I think we've made pretty good progress. We have a webinar this afternoon, right? We do. We've made excellent progress. Really kudos to the team. Right. right. Really stepped up. Right, there's a lot to talk about in that web uh, in that uh, CCAR stress test, but we'll, we'll wait for the webinar. To yeah, do that. yeah. yeah. Uh, I was uh, in Miami last night speaking to a bunch of real estate folks and uh, made my way back to Vero this morning. Uh, and AT and T, I have AT and T cell service that went that went down. So I I don't know about you guys, but if I don't have my cell working, somehow I feel naked i mean literally <laughs> i want to try to have no clothes on that i have my cell phone really very very uh disconcerting feeling and i of course i was thinking it was my phone not at&t and then i heard on the radio because i had the radio on that i guess the whole network is down or a big part of the network is down so wow still do you have, uh, do you have a paper map in your uh, car there or? i don't i you know i used to religiously keep uh yeah. maps but when's the last time you looked at a map you mean a, a paper copy map? Like a, a roadmap? Yeah, like Can't roadmap. remember. <laughs> well, we've got a guest, uh, Mark Calabria. Mark, good to see you again. Pleasure to be here, as always. Yeah, and I'm trying to remember, you were on... When a year ago or something like that, nine, Ooh. 12 months ago, sometime. Really? That long ago? I mean, it may have been sooner. Uh I don't look at maps. I don't look at calendars either. So uh, <laughs> well, you're a lucky man. You're a lucky man. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm wedded to that cell phone. But it's good to have you back on. Um, I, and I think uh, always a lot to talk about in the housing mortgage finance space. And last go around, we didn't really have an opportunity to talk about the book you wrote in any detail. Uh, it's Shelter from the, the Storm. storm. How the storm. a COVID mortgage meltdown was averted. Right. And uh, you go through your uh, your leadership at FHFA, the regulator for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And the, you were there under the Trump administration and when the pandemic hit and obviously a lot of turmoil. Uh, and uh, your book is about how you dealt with that and the policy you put into place. So I want to talk about that. Uh, how's the book doing? Do you know? Uh, it's well, you know, surprisingly hard to get accurate sales numbers on a regular basis because of the different channels. But um, I've heard, you know, the feedback has been um, terrific. Uh, surprisingly, in some sectors, because there are things in the book that um, I think are somewhat critical of parts of the mortgage sector, and 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 yet the response has been um, pretty positive. Um, and I try to make the criticism constructive. So I've been very happy with, uh, you know. I, 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 my takeaway is not that I'll never do another book again. <laughs> yeah. oh, it, it, that's not your takeaway. That's not my takeaway. Oh, okay. That it, I, okay. I feel, you know, as you know, from having written uh, book books, it's a lot goes into it. Um, and as you know, as well, uh, you put as much energy into the marketing as you do into the writing. It seems. Yeah, yeah for so, sure. But, um, well, I, I kinda, the metaphor I have in my mind with regard to book writing is running a marathon right it, yep. it's a, it's, you know very very painful while you're doing it but once the book is done you go oh 
Uh, Once you cross the finish line, and and of course, like a marathon, it's not done until you cross the finish line. That's true. That's Uh, true. That's very true. That's very true. Well, we'll we'll come back to the book because I want to talk first about, and I I think we did this when you were on previously. Oh, and I should say, obviously, you're a Cato now, right? You're now a Cato. Washington. Yeah. Uh, Anything else in your remit that you want to bring up? Anything? Not necessarily. I think that's a, a good focus. Okay. Yeah, and uh, I don't know the housing market's changed all that much since the last time we talked. Pretty vexed. Although today we get the existing home sales for the month of uh, January. I guess it's, we, we haven't gotten them yet. Uh, but uh, obviously, it just feels like the housing market is in a very weird place. Uh, it doesn't, you know, since you're sitting in Florida, I'll be curious I really think of 2023 is kind of a year of, of multiple lines of divergence. Um, you know, single family constructions going this way, but multifamilies going this way, existing new sales doing different crazy things. But just as much, you know, California deflating while Florida still going like gangbusters. Um, what am I? I have a cousin who's a realtor in the the Parkland Plantation area, and I talk to him kind of regularly. And certainly, his still saw a lot of traffic, you know, in in South Florida for 2023. But my gut is, and I think we're already starting to see signs of this, that I think we're going to start to see a little bit of convergence back to normal trends, where this may be the year where Florida starts to revert to where the rest of the country has been going. And and again, since you're there, I would be curious whether you feel like you're seeing that um, already. And I do think we're, you know, we've had a couple of years of where new homes have made an outsized percentage of sales. And I'm not, I don't think we're going to get back completely to trend, but I think we're headed that direction where you're going to see more, existing inventory come back onto the market. Um, and again, new, new sales are still play an outsized role, but maybe less so. So um, while divergence was was kind of my theme for 2023, I think a little more convergence is what I think we're going to see in 2024. Mm. Hey, yeah, Chris, what's going on in the Florida market? I know you follow that carefully. Yeah, it does look as though we're seeing some pressure. The, uh, the insurance, rising homeowner insurance seems to be having more and more of a of an impact, right? That had been a bit of a mystery, but I think now, given the higher interest rates, that you know, borrowers are realizing the total cost of ownership there is is, is high. Uh, we are looking, we are seeing some increase in month supply in those areas. I think Vero Beach actually has very high level of month really? supply by our ca- calculation. So I don't know if you're seeing that, but uh, no, well, relative the home to right next history. to me, just transacted. I can't wait to see. What the price was, uh, I, I'm not sure what it was, but the literally right next door that that home just sold. So uh, interesting, but inventories are up. I didn't know that. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. across the metro, maybe not in your. Yeah, yeah, in, I'm in my street. Little, which uh, is what I care about yeah, enclave there. <laughs> there's the Zandy premium that goes into that. <laughs> it's so funny, Mark. I got a great story. So I bought this home back uh, in 2007, I think. Yeah. Maybe it was early 2008. You know, it, the, it was after the first leg down in house prices. This was the financial crisis, you know, the beginning. Oh, of the yeah. Time. And my neighbor at the time comes over, you know, says, uh, I just wanted to say hello. And we're very happy you're, you're, you came to the neighborhood because 
given that you're an economist, we now all feel like this has got to be the bottom in house prices. Of course, <laughs> prices fell another 25 percent. You know, after that, uh, I'm not. I'm not going to claim timing, but my current house I bought in 2010, and if you map it out, it's almost exactly at the bottom. Again, more oh, more great. luck, more luck than anything else. Um, yeah. uh, so, well, and uh, I was going to say I, I sold a rental in spring of 22, so I guess that was where I thought the rental market was going to be going afterwards. So, uh, yeah, I, with the caveat of. Um, nobody should really try to time the real estate market. It's tough. Somebody it's tough. Get, you get occasionally lucky. It's tough. Yeah. I mean, of course, prices have risen. So I, I don't feel so bad now that I've held on to it. And uh, now I use the home. So that that's good too. But nonetheless, I, I go, gee whiz. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, so convergence, um, is that possible though, in the context of how, poor housing, single family housing affordability really is. I mean, if you look at where mortgage rates are at 7%, even no recession, we're, we're getting income gains. And given where house prices are, I mean, they fell a bit in 22, they rose a bit in 23, and they're still extraordinarily high. Oh, and here's a factoid, factoid for you. New home, uh, the median price of a new home is e equal to a median price of an existing home. And that that rarely ever happens. Exactly. Rarely. You've seen yeah. builders start to, you know, try to target that lower end of the market. I mean, and that's mm. a response to the lack of existing um, inventory. So as my uh, realtor friends always like to say, location, location, location. And, you know, when I say convergence, what I, what I really mean is I think you're going to start to see some of the common trends. Um, so, you know, it, it's more a case of, is was mentioned by Chris, you know, inventory is building up in Florida. You know, I think at least at a minimum price appreciation is kind of slow, if not actually turned negative in parts of Florida. Mm. Um, and you've already seen that, for instance, in lots of parts of California. You see it in places like Boise, where there was a lot of in-migration um, during COVID. Uh, and I also kind of think that while 2022, we really, I mean, 2023 rather, you know, we saw, you know, the first couple of innings and a correction in multifamily construction. You haven't seen that in single family. Uh, and so in a sense, I think what you've seen in terms of the markets that have been correcting, um, the rest of the markets that haven't really corrected, or many of them, I think are going to start to converge in that direction. So that's, that's what I mean. And that's not to say, I mean, as you know, you know, one of my great frustrations I feel like I hear in the commentary is, you know, people often say, well, you know, supply is limited, therefore prices mm -hmm. can't fall. And my response is always, let's let's go back to our Econ 101 and remember. And if we want to be very simple about it and say, uh, in many markets, housing supply is essentially inelastic in the short run, mm -hmm. which, of course, means we've got a vertical supply curve. And what that suggests to me is changes in demand can have relatively large changes in prices, even without a movement in supply. And there have certainly been offsetting factors. We've seen, you know, record immigration numbers, for instance, in the last year, uh, that's kept up demand. Uh, there's been, you know, income growth, people are still spending down COVID savings. So demand has been strong. But at some point, if you see a weakening in demand, 
even without additional supply on the market, which of course in places like Florida, we are seeing additional supply. I think you can get, you know, you know I think you can get price declines in some markets. But again, I really emphasize it's going to be localized. Um, as long as the job market continues, then I think the housing market will be fine. And 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 ultimately, it's a good reminder. Um, you know, I'm more of the school of you know, yeah, interest rates and 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 underwriting matter kind of in the short run. But ultimately, for the housing market, it's household growth, it's stem, you know, the underlying demographics, it's income growth, it's job growth, and those things, in my view, tend to dominate everything else. Mm. But on the supply side, um, I mean, of course, there's two aspects to that. One is the interest rate lock, meaning you got a lot of yeah. homeowners with a mortgage that has a very low rate. They locked in prior to the run up in rates. And, you know, the I think the average coupon on an existing mortgage is 3.5%. Kind of crazy. Current, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The current mortgage rate seven. So they're locked or it feels like they're locked for a while until you know their their demographic needs change to such a point that life, life no events choice. and such. And the other is in the in the physical market, uh, just a number of homes, single multifamily manufactured housing that's going up relative to that demand, uh, you know, household formation, obsolescence and second vacation homes. It feels like the shortfall is pretty severe and you can see it in the vacancy rates. I mean, the homeowner the homeowner sure. vacancy rates at a record low. So it feels like it's it's also physical. It's also supply too, though. No. I mean, there, there absolutely is a supply constraint, but, you know, I'll just again... The more inelastic supply, the the bigger the magnitude of price changes with any one given change in demand. There are elements we've been building, you know, more multifamily since we have in the 70s. And you've actually, interestingly enough, seen a rather large increase in the number of for rent properties that are being held off the market. And what a lot of people are doing is instead of selling that home in which they're three and a half, they're moving and taking a new job and renting it. Um, Ian, I'd be the first to say, I think you could go a number of years where you see softness in the rental market and in Metro before it starts to show up in homeownership. But I do think that there's pressure. Um, you know, you, you when the options to rent are so much cheaper in a Metro, you know, you, you trying to attract first-time home buyers is pressure on that. Uh, and again, there's a lag there, but I think we really have started to see a lot of supply on the rental market come on. And the question is ultimately what's the lag in terms of impact in the single family market from that. So that's kind of where, where I'm looking at it. Uh, I can't remember whether it was you or, or one of my other forecaster friends who came up with the uh, give a number, give a date, but never give both. Um, <laughs> that's, yeah. And, and so this is one of those things where I never know, say that it wasn't Mark. It wasn't, it wasn't me. Mark. You yeah. always do both. I'll do, I'll do, do all both. the above. Yeah. Which, which should be applauded. But um, so in this case, you know, these are kind of the trends I see playing out and certainly in the multifamily, you know, I mean, I guess, you know, what I really want to distinguish is it's certainly possible. And we are in a case where I would say there is a trend structural shortage but I think you can be in the case where the cyclical, you know, you're, you're getting to a part in the rental market, in my opinion, where we're oversupplied in the cyclical point of view, which doesn't yeah. mean we don't, don't need more housing overall, ultimately. Yeah, on that, uh, and I may have this wrong, but the narrative I have in my mind on the multifamily supply, and you're right, there's a lot of supply coming. I think there's a million multifamily units almost on the nose. Yep. In the pipeline going to completion that got bottled up because of the pandemic, uh, supply chain issues, labor market issues. 
but that they've been resolved and now the supply is coming in. But that feels like that's all at the high end of the multifamily market, the kind of lifestyle rental, the big the big apartment towers. Sure. Going I, I, the, the, but ultimately it filters down. You know, if you can move up from a CB property into an A property, that's going to put pressure. You know, again, uh, we'll start with one of my favorite factoids to the extent that it is a factoid, which is, um, you know, every new home on average results in about four moves. You know, as people move up, there is a housing ladder. We have broken it in many parts of the countries, mm. but the concept does exist. And I would argue there is a rental quality ladder as well, where, you know, you may, you know, you not everybody goes exactly immediately from their parents' basement to a luxury rental, you know. And again, you're right in that most of the construction is either um, assisted. So, you know, my gut is probably about, 50 to 60% of, of apartment construction now is, is tax credit driven. So, you know, there, there's a huge part of this that is subsidized, that is supposed to be readily available for median or below median income. Uh, certainly almost all of the unsubsidized rental is at the top end. But again, that allows someone to move up from a B property to a C property, which puts downward pressure on the B property. So I do think you're, Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Mark. Sorry. So I do think you're going to start to see rents softening again, location, location, location. This is going to differ by by market. Um, and so I, I think this is something you're going to start to see and have seen in a number of markets already. And that's going to make homeownership less attractive at the margin for a number of households. So uh, uh, the housing affordability, let's call it many would crisis, uh, which goes in part to the shortage of homes, uh, both on the single family and a rental side, is caught policymakers' attention. And there's a piece of tax legislation kind of finding its way through the legislative process. This is child tax credit. This is R&D tax credit. And in that legislation is uh, juicing up LIHTC, low-income housing tax credit. You talk, you just just alluded to Yeah, you know, and, and this is a great point. I, I'll, I'll say up front, I'm not a huge LIHTC fan. I know that that oh. leads me as an outlier. I know it's much beloved, <laughs> yeah. especially in Washington. Um, you know, first of all, it's, it's presented, and I understand the reason it's presented this way, is a supply uh, subsidy. But if you really think about it, you know, and again, I think often you and I might arrive sometimes at different observations because of the difference of being a micro versus a macro economist. Uh -huh. Top down and, versus bottom up. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. so, you know, I really think about like, okay, you're injecting a subsidy into a supply chain. You know, what's the relatively fixed factor of production? And in this case, it's developable land. It's not the equity. It's not. So, so ultimately if you think about what really is, going to filter through in terms of if you increase the tax credit, it's going to allow developers to bid, you know, higher prices for the developable land. So it'll be great if, you know, if you own uh, developable land in places like California, an expansion of tax credit will be very good for you. You will capture most of those subsidies. Um, you also have a process where in many places, the tax credit process results in properties that are no cheaper to do than unsubsidized. And that's, you know, you have the labor rules that are involved. You have a number of different other requirements. You know, these properties tend to have four to eight total subsidies. It's rarely just a tax credit. And each one requires an application and a set of lawyers. It, it's just not a terribly efficient delivery vehicle for subsidy, in, in my view. And again, 
One of the reasons it's popular, because as I mentioned, everybody kind of gets a piece. Labor gets a piece. Lawyers get a piece. The Wall Street syndicators get a piece. The developer gets a piece. So on one hand, it's a perfectly structured political program. It's just not a program, in my opinion, that actually on net adds, you know, and as we talked about in the luxury end, it does end up, you know, the number of academic peer-reviewed studies, good journals, you get a, you get about 50%, 60% um, displacement where the tax credit property comes online and then a lower quality property leaves, you know, leaves the stock. So it does, I mean, the probably the most important thing if you wanted to be an advocate, a big advocate for the program is it definitely upgrades the quality of assisted housing. Mm-hmm. So that's probably the most immediate effect is a quality impact rather than uh, a quantity impact. Um, and so again, you know, I, I guess I put it this way: it's not even necessarily a matter of of spending. Um, if you had, I mean, let's just say it's a couple of billion. I think you'd make a bigger impact spending the exact same amount of dollars on vouchers than you would on tax credit. And I understand given the supply constraints. The other thing that I, you know, my, my knock on the tax credit program. So here's a factory that may, may, may surprise you, but not given you're in Florida. Um, over 50% of renters live in properties of under five units. And the median tax credit property size is about 40 units. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, if, if much of the pressure we're seeing in affordability is not simply New York City, but also suburban areas or rural areas, I mean, again, not saying there are no tax credit developments in rural America, but there are very few compared to it. So you're leaving out a very large segment of renters. Um, and I would also kind of say it's a cyclical point. Is this really the point in the cycle where you want to add more subsidy to multifamily development. I mean, again, part of this is separating out the trends uh, from the cyclical component in multifamily. I get it. And I'd also say as an aside, and this is more my experience in government, I really don't like spending through the tax code, you know, um, partly because you've kind of hardwired it and you've set it, you know, you made it much difficult to change. And at the end of the day, um, our country's needs change from year to year. You know, who am I to say that next year the marginal dollars shouldn't go to education or healthcare? So why, you know, I, when you lock it into the tax code, you you reduce flexibility. And I like to have flexibility to address the ever-changing needs of our country. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. That's you know, really, that's a whole nother like podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Holy cow. Uh, but uh, Chris, the, any reaction to what Mark said? Uh, any piece of that you want to uh, tackle? Um, I'm sympathetic to much of the view. Uh, there are a lot of uh, academic studies. I recall well, they were early 2000s when, when I was reading them, but I'm assuming they're still valid. That showed that there's a large substitution effect with LightTech, that you just are substituting a lot of private uh, investment for the subsidized uh, product. So you know, I, th- I think there's. I didn't certainly know you were a Cato kind of guy, Chris. That's, that's, just, that's yeah. just what the studies say. <laughs> just, uh, just, uh, just realist. Right? Uh, I don't. Look, I'm not against. I'm not. I'm not well, perhaps as adamantly against providing subsidy. Right, I right. just don't know that this program is as effective as uh, it's made out to be. Well, I, think I, I, I make a political economy argument. That is, look, 
no policy is sure. perfect. All policy has unintended consequences, issues, whatever, uh, uh, things that, that mitigate the effectiveness of the policy. But in the current context, tell me what we should, what better solution do we have to address what I consider to be a crisis with regard to affordable rental? You know, people, that's part of the reason why the homelessness is such a, such a problem as it is today. The cost of renting is just out of bounds for many American households. We need more supply. Yeah, sure, there's going to be some substitu sub substitution. And yeah, you're right. It may cause land prices to rise in certain parts of the country. But LIHTC is coast to coast. It's not just California. It's not just, you know, of Florida. It, it's rural Texas. It's, you know, all over the country that we need the the the, the housing. And, uh, and, and to your point about tax uh, subsidies, uh, most tax subsidies, including the one that's in this piece of tax legislation that we're debating now, expire and you and you get a debate and you come right back to it right now we're back talking about r d tax credits yeah. we're back talking about child tax credits and there's no guarantee that it's going to be passed and in fact these things have been delayed to passage so this is a you know a very good way of reevaluating you know what kind of policies you need so yeah i mean there are elements of the tax code that applies i permanent there are some that come up pretty regularly and 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 and, and generally that's driven by scoring issues and what Congress needs to do at the moment. But first, let's, you know, I, I am a glass half full guy. And so let me start out with, um, you know, I've really been heartened by much of the conversations in many states and localities about dealing with restrictions on supply, because ultimately, it's extremely hard for Washington to fix this problem because of supply yeah, constraints. Yeah. And so what's being done in Montana, you know, what's being discussed, what's been done in, in, in Minneapolis, what's being discussed in, in California and some of the changes that have been made. And so as, as Chris Ray may remember, I mean, 25 years ago, it was only a bunch of economists talking among themselves about, you know, zoning and supply restrictions. And now it, this is a mainstreamed conversation. And you're not just a mainstreamed conversation that has entered general consciousness, but it's actually resulted in legislative changes in a number of localities. And if you don't fix that, I mean, I do worry that a lot of Washington responses, you know, you have a hammer and therefore everything looks like a nail. And much of much of Washington's housing policy infrastructure was created during the Great Depression to deal with perceived demand insufficiency. And, and that's and, if, and again, if you have policies that you think are there to manage aggregate demand in an environment of fixed supply, you get inflation. And so I am optimistic in that we've really seen these conversations and policy changes at the local level. Unfortunately, there's been backlash. I mean, um, you see places like Austin that are moving in the wrong direction because Texas has been such a magnet for in migration. But you also see, you know, again, somebody who's been following these issues for 25 years, the conversation in Washington has much more a land use component and part of the discussion than it did 10, 20 years ago. And I think that's a positive. So you got to deal with that issue. As I mentioned, like, you know, for instance, one of the more successful programs. So again, this is not a Cato, everything bad. It's more a, you know, what's least bad, if you will, or what's most impactful. I actually think the way the home program works at HUD is the right mm -hmm. model because it allows you to do development. It allows you to do vouchers. It allows you to pay security deposits. It really has a tremendous amount of flexibility. 
And, you know, as you know, a significant amount of the tax credit program does go for rehab, which is a useful for some markets. And it really is just, you know, I come from the place of, you know, it is a, this is all location driven and um, many markets do have supply constraints. Not everyone do. Uh, many markets, they won't support the density that's normally required, you know, the, the rural Texas, as you mentioned. So I would rather, you know, again, even if you spent the exact same amount of money, I'd rather see you go through the home program because I think that gives more flexibility. Yeah, I I hear you. And it, you know, but the political the dynamics side, are. Yeah, on the demand side, I particularly in the current context with the supply. In my view, supply curve is to, to using your right. language very inelastic uh, for lots of reasons that are uh, hard to uh, address, but we got a housing problem right now, okay. but I don't, I agree. We shouldn't layer on top of this inelastic supply curve juice to demand. That would be, you know, that's all that. Yeah, does and, is and, I, and this is one reason, you know, I mean, I have been, you know, critical of some of the other, you know, we have seen record construction in, you know, manufacturing many around chips and, and other facilities, but, that competes directly with the labor you're going to need to build housing and other infrastructure. And, and so we, you know, we have to make choices about whether this is the right time to build what. Um, and, you know, of course, you know, you lost a lot of um, construction labor during the two, during the 2008 crisis. Uh, I like to think I'm doing my, my part. My nephew is working on his journeyman's and plumbing and is doing <laughs> out we there. We, need, we, we do a lot more of them, yeah. And I think there that needs to be part of the conversation. I guess I should preface with uh, I know at least you and I, and maybe uh, you, you know the other two as well. But I just find it kind of weird a guy with a PhD saying, you know, we need more people not going to college and more people going to vocational yeah. school. And, <laughs> but we do, we, we do. do. And those we are do. important parts yeah. of the economy, you know. So yeah. that's kind of you know. I, I, but I, but the overall, I agree that I think we have we have a housing affordability crisis in, in most of America. And it's just really, how do you address it? Yeah. I want to move the conversation forward a little bit and get to the FHFA when you were leader, uh, running the show there. Before I do that, just one quick question, and this may be outside sure. your remit. No, absolutely. Have you thought about what's going on with the uh, inflation, the growth in the cost of housing services? You know, there's if you look at last month's inflation report, CPI report, there was a large increase, uh, outsized increase in owner's equivalent rent. That's the, the cost of home ownership. So I've long been of the view that the Fed should respond more quickly. I mean, because the housing generally enters enters with a lag and the Fed is almost always responding to a housing. As you remember, we had these debates about should the Fed, you know, every 15 years we debate whether the Fed should care about asset prices. Um, and I can remember the Greenspan response was always, well, if this is a real concern, it'll eventually show up in CPI and spending. But the problem is that lag ends up, in my opinion, meaning that the Fed kind of responds to housing at the wrong time. And so I would have had the Fed respond quicker. To be frank about it, you know, the Fed should have stopped buying MBS by the fall of 2020. You know, mortgage we, securities, mortgage yeah, securities. Yeah, mortgage securities. Yeah. We were through the disruptions in the MBS market that happened in the spring of 2020, which I talk about in my book. And by the time you get to August, September, to me, there really just wasn't a strong justification for the Fed continuing to juice the mortgage market. That's that's my view. That obviously was not the view of the Fed. I, I expressed that view of the, to the Fed. 
Um, and so I, I think, again, we would be in a better spot today if the Fed had a more real-time uh, ability to react to housing rather than with the lag that they're currently stuck with. Um, you know, what I the tension I have is, you know, there are people who seem to say, you know, whose position seems to be that the Fed should never react to housing. Like, you know, ignore it on the front end when it's inflating, but, oh, it's a lag now, so ignore it now. Well, okay. Then just say you think that the Fed should always ignore housing. Um, to me, housing, you know, consumption out of housing wealth, these are important transmission vehicles. In fact, I would go as far to say, um, I think housing is the most important transmission mechanism for monetary policy. Mm-hmm. And, and it's the one we need to take most seriously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. Okay, let's, uh, let's uh, turn back uh, into history. And when you were FHFA uh, director, again, the regulator for Fannie and Freddie, and the Federal Home Loan Banks, and we're going to talk about the Federal Home Loan Bank system as well, because that's come under some criticism. And um, to roll the history books back to the teeth of the pandemic, uh, obviously a, a lot of turmoil at the time. And you took a kind of unpopular kind of, uh, position on all this. Maybe you can just just well, some of it. it some you... of it. Let's 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 break that out. And yeah, you know. Th- the book starts January 2020, but the thinking behind the book really goes back to, you know, I was staff on Senate Banking Committee in 2008. I had oversight for the mortgage programs. Uh, and it really, I, I believe the book is largely, you know, nonpartisan. I mean, I, I was at the time very critical of both the Bush and Obama response. And, you know, for those who remember the programs like HAMP and HARP, I mean, to me, they weren't really, they weren't transparent. I didn't think they were fair to borrowers, lenders are the taxpayer, you know, and so I spent a lot of time in the 2000s, 10s thinking about, boy, that stuff didn't work well. What we, what, you know, if by chance I'm in the position of being responsible for this stuff, what would I do differently? And hence, we did it differently. And and I do think that the response to what could have been a housing crisis in 2020 was because we made different policy choices than what was made um, post 2008. And so let's take a couple of pieces. Uh, first, there was how did we deal with borrowers? And very much on the front end, I had these what I call the paper chase kind of scars of post 2008, where you remember, you know, borrowers would have to file and the paperwork would get lost and maybe somebody wrote something wrong, the lender, whatever. And it just took forever to get people in programs. And so I immediately looked, up, looked at this and said, it's a pandemic. We can't set up a system where it takes five to six months to get somebody in. And um, we also, you know, and it, it, it's a real tragedy that this isn't really being fixed. But, you know, our unemployment insurance system in America is kind of a mess. Oh, yeah. Even if you get unemployment, and which only about half of workers tend to, as you know, um, it still takes you maybe two, three, four months to get it. So part of our thinking was, you know, how do we build a bridge? You know, how do we help people immediately deal with a liquidity shock so that maybe three months later when they get their unemployment check, they can start paying their mortgage and get out? So in some sense, and, you know, we there's still debates today whether 2008 was a liquidity versus solvency event. I think we had somewhat the benefit in 2020 that it was very going to be clearly for some households a liquidity event. You know, and this was, you know, how do we get you to the other side, whether it's the other side of the pandemic, whether it's you're getting your unemployment insurance, 
The other thing I think that was just crucial, to make that clear to the listener, liquidity versus solvency, you're making the point that uh, their incomes are disrupted because they can't go to work. Correct. But it's not like their home value is underwater. You know, their mortgages exactly. are worth more than their than yeah. their their housing value, which is what was the big difference between the pandemic and the financial crisis. Yeah. Are you also think during the financial crisis where, you know, you're a carpenter whose career is, you know, suddenly not worth what it was because we're not building housing in the same way. So there could be human capital that has depreciated, mm -hmm. if you will. So there's a number of reasons where this was clearly different. And so we structured it. Uh, differently. Now, there was a decision, you know, and, and this is actually something I, I called kind of the, the Casey Mulligan effect after Casey Mulligan at the University of Chicago. And Casey came out with a wonderful, if not extremely dense, difficult book to read his redistribution recession um, on 2010, where his argument was, particularly the mortgage programs had very high rates of implied marginal tax rates. So, HARP and HAMP, which were the primary Bush-Obama mortgage programs, they were designed so that you got 31 cents of mortgage relief for every dollar of earnings. And of course, the flip side of that is for every additional dollar you earn, you lose 31 cents. And so Casey went through and added all the other things like benefit loss, tax loss. And there was actually a significant amount of the population that faced marginal tax rates in terms of lost benefits in excess of 100 I mean, so it's like, you know, we we sometimes have these public debates about people being lazy when, no, I mean, if you're losing a significant amount of additional earnings, that's a huge work disincentive. Mm -hmm. So the relevancy here is, um, A, to be able to facilitate getting people in quickly, we weren't going to means test. And I'm generally a proponent of means testing, but we said, okay, we're not going to means test. And we're also not going to set eligibility based on earnings. We're going to set it on time. Now, admittedly, part of this was when we still thought, you know, 15 days to flatten the curve type world. Yeah. And, right. and of course, that right. turned a little longer than that. Um, and so it really was, you know, we're just going to get you in. We're going to take your word. The initial design, I'll remind folks that what we set up was about three weeks before the CARES Act. And the CARES Act made some minor changes, some of which ended up being important. But the original design was we'd get people in and three months later, we would check on them. You know, have you gotten your unemployment check? Have you gone back to work? Of course, CARES Act got rid of the come back and check. So we really were trying to design something that was incentive compatible, that, that got people in in a way um, we're easy to get in, but tough. Like we expect you to pay everything back. We also created carrots uh, to get people out. So for instance, normally pre-pandemic, if you are in a Fannie, Freddie, forbearance, or any type of mitigation, you have to make 12 on-time monthly payments to be able to eligible to refinance. Mm -hmm. So what we did was first we said, if you have been in forbearance program, but you paid the whole time, which was about a fifth of the program, a lot of people just took it as an option. We said, you know, once you exit the program, you can immediately be eligible to refinance. And then for those who missed a payment, we reduced that 12 months to three. So if you obviously given those record low rates, uh, in the second half of 2020, this was a really big carrot, you know, when a lot of people took that, I will say one of the really surprising things to me, the rather large percent of people who were literally sending us a check for three, four months missed mortgage payment. So a lot of people got out of that. And I'm, and I'm proud to say that by the time I left, I think only not, over 90% of the people who had entered Fannie, Freddie, forbearance had exited. But let's pivot this to the more controversial because there was some 
because we were provided an option. Um, and no one, no one. I mean, that seems all very exactly, reasonable. Exactly. And, okay. So that's the setup for the controversy. Got <laughs> it. That, got it. Yep. Thank you. I appreciate the the recognition of that being reasonable. Um, so, <laughs> and I and I think and I. I do think you're reasonable. We disagree on many things, but you you are very reasoned in our. I, I find our our disagreements very reasoned. At least your arguments very reasoned. Yeah. Thank yeah. you, thank you. And and I and I think I largely understand. You know, most of the time where where we disagree, which again that's a that's a compliment because it means you're being transparent generally about oh, your fine. assumptions and your model. Um, and so, when in a forbearance, obviously the borrower is not paying. So under our existing mortgage programs, the investor still, well, first of all, the investor still wants to get paid and generally does get paid. So the responsibility of the mortgage servicer, and for those not familiar, you know, the mortgage servicer is basically the one who collects your check and sends it to the investor. Or, you know, if there's a foreclosure or some sort of mitigation, the servicer is the one who touches the borrower, if you will. So the servicers were still obligated to transfer um, the investment, the, the payments to the investors of the MBS mortgage backstage, even though the borrower wasn't paying. Now, I do want to emphasize, because I think this was a point of misunderstanding at a minimum, um, the contracts that Fannie and Freddie have as servicers are very explicit that this is supposed to be provided even in times of extreme distress. Mm. So. It is, we are paying you to do this mm. even when stuff gets bad. That's part of the contract. Um, and so a number of people do servicing. And in fact, servicers often have the choice of whether Fannie and Freddie take over that responsibility. So the servicer can choose to pick contract A or contract B. Contract A essentially says, okay, I, the servicer, I'm going to make less money now because I'm going to share a little bit with Fannie and Freddie and they will take over the servicing obligation in the, in the event the borrower doesn't pay. And then contract B, which is more lucrative on the front end, the servicer takes that risk. And again, servicers knowingly make this choice. Uh, and so because a lot of the servicers were non-banks with very thin balance sheets, there was a real concern by a number of them that um, they, would, they would become under distress by having to make these payments on behalf of borrowers. There was a movement to have the Federal Reserve create a 13-3 facility uh, to provide uh, um, uh, uh, short-term liquidity. There were calls to have Fannie and Freddie provide short-term liquidity, um, and none of that ultimately happened. Now, there were different wrinkles. Um, a, we weren't able to do it for Fannie and Freddie because Fannie and Freddie themselves barely um, – barely survived COVID. I mean, I think this is something that's underappreciated. They really came within a hair's breadth of failing um, because of the cost of the forbearance, the cost failing of- Failing in the sense that- Insolvency. The, the capital they had at the time- Would have been, been, been wiped exhausted. And they didn't exactly. have much capital at the time because they had right. only begun to build- You oh, yeah. only started building capital. Right? So we made considerable progress in that in April 2019. And, and Mark, I, on that one, though, I mean, at the end of the day, they're under government conservatorship. It's not like they it does not mean You can become insolvent and you can have losses. I mean, this doesn't is mean they, there's no way they would have stopped functioning, though, right? I mean, perhaps they, not. But there is a way that you could have potentially seen creditors take losses. You could have ended a okay. receivership. I mean, that there are it, it's not something I think one should take lightly, but is importantly, okay. FHFA has no statutory responsibility toward non-bank servicers. Don't regulate them. 
Um, you know, we and so if you think about, you know, you kind of have a waterfall of responsibilities and your primary one at FHBA is is the safety and soundness of the companies you sacrifice. So I would go as far to say if you put Fannie and Freddie at greater risk in order to benefit non-bank services, you would have been derelict in your duty to under the statute. So for me, it, it really just wasn't an option because we didn't have the money to do it, which to me, I think is a compelling reason why the companies ultimately need to be fixed. So I'll remind you that um, the FHMA director actually has zero say under whether the Fed creates a 13-3 facility for anybody. Sure. Um, and so I think some of the reason that there was some pressure put on me was that Mnuchin was was regularly consulting me and what we were seeing, as was the Fed. Treasury um, Secretary under President Trump yeah, at the time. Right. Yeah. And so uh, we were regularly having conversations with the Fed, um, you know, Brainerd at first, who's currently NSC director, but was the governor at the Fed who was in charge really of the mortgage issues at the time. Uh, I've been on the phone pretty regularly with Brainerd. We gave them regular updates. This is what we're seeing. She made very clear to me that they had a facility at the Fed set up and ready to mm-hmm. go for mortgage servicers. And they simply needed the Treasury Secretary to, to give the sign off. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, you have to keep in mind as well that you know, Mnuchin had come out of, you know, he had he had worked in MBS training at Goldman. He had run a bank, you know, bought IndyMacNet. You know, so he had a considerable amount of experience in the mortgage market and considered himself, rightly so, to be well-informed. Mm-hmm. So needless to say, however, um, I th- Mnuchin's stance was more, well, we're not going to do this, but I don't see the reason to tell anybody we're not going to do this. Mm-hmm. And I think this is where he and I, Parted on that, where I felt it was, you know, I'm more from the school that markets perform better, particularly in periods of stress, if policymakers provide more certainty rather than less. Mm-hmm. You know, and also as I kind of call it, and I recognize I'm very much in the minority to to sort of take this lesson away from Lehman, but my Lehman Brothers lesson is that if you lead an institution to believe it will be rescued. It will not take the appropriate actions to avoid that. You know, for instance, we know Lehman had at least three different offers to be bought. And every time the response was, we won't take less per share than what Bear got. Hmm. And the relevancy here, for instance, is um, there were two rather large mortgage, non-bank mortgage servicers who had private equity parents. And I'm actually rather pro-private equity. So this isn't a knock on private equity. But um, the private equity parents had in 2019 pulled literally billions out of this these platforms. And that's fine. Investors get to take their money out. Uh, but when these private equity investors essentially came to Washington and said, we'd like you to create a liquidity facility to take care of our platforms, our response was, we think you should put some of your money back in. Hmm. And um, lo and behold, they did. And, that's, and, and those platforms have value today. And I think they only really did because basically I had relayed uh, via Fannie and Freddie to these um, private equity investors. Uh, if your platforms fail, we can and will transfer the servicing to somebody else. And therefore, the value of your platform is gone. So again, you know, this is capitalism. You take the upside, you take the downside. And they were willing to do it. I mean, it might be an unusual case in that um, I'm sh- I suspect they were sitting around the table often saying, you know what? I think that Calabria is crazy enough to do it. So we better put money back in. And- <laughs> It worked, and it may not work. Other people might not have that kind of um, right. The, the same credential, crazy credentials that you need. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, there's a uh, you know, if you, uh, I encourage you, there's a 20 some year old paper by Rogoff called you know the case for conservative central banker, and it's really about like how do you establish 
a credible reputation to be tough. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's often lacking in Washington because you are in a sense trying to solve a prisoner's dilemma game with, with the, with the predators. So it, it, it's interesting. You, you're saying uh, under statute, your interpretation of the statute, FA, the GSC, FHFA could not compel the GSEs to step in and provide liquidity yeah. support to the non-banks. That really was on, uh, on, it was on the, the Fed, on the Fed, and they needed yeah, Congress and our Congress, and they needed buy-in from the Treasury to do it, and they were just kind of sort of waiting. But and the real disagreement with that you had with uh, the Treasury Secretary was over just how to articulate this to the marketplace. Like you know, I see. Yeah. Now, yeah. So they needed they needed Treasury to sign off. He was not inclined to sign off. Um, you know, again, to me. I understand the dynamic. I mean, we all have decisions in our life where we feel saying nothing is the path of least resistance. And that was his approach there. Um, yeah. But again, I felt that I was willing to take public criticism. You know, I mean, there were, I mean, I, I, you know, one of the fun parts of the book was going back and rereading all the kind and generous things that were said about me in the press at the time. You know, I mean, the Financial Times is claiming I'm going to cause a meltdown in the entire yeah. economy because we do this. And I, part of the reason to relay that is, you know, I, I very much understand what it's like when you're a policymaker and 95% of the phone calls you get are throw money at this problem. Right. You get very little, you know, you get very little input from the other side of like, well, maybe we should. And again, I, I do emphasize our approach is very data driven. So, for, I, so at the time in March 2020, there were 346 non-bank mortgage servicers that Fannie and Freddie did this business with. I had their income statements. I had their balance sheets. We immediately jumped on the phone. It's a concentrated industry. We jumped on the phone with the 30 largest. We said, look, I've got your financials. What has changed? And so it really was, we're going to take a data-driven approach to this. Um, we're going to see where the stress is. Every morning during at least the first six months of the pandemic, I received a servicer watch list. And we were in constant conversation with those who we thought. Uh, we also, during these calls, were regularly updating. We had a running sort of tally of what we thought service or transfer capacity was. And we would call people and say, if we need to transfer some servicing for somebody else, how much can you take? Mm. And, you know, we were kind of comparing these circles of, you know, mm -hmm. supply and demand, if you will, and trying to manage that in a way. Um, certainly that was more work than just creating a liquidity facility and, and rescuing people. I do think there was a degree of, I mean, A, I think the industry felt that everybody else was getting a rescue and, and therefore why were they being excluded? And to, to the credit, you know, one um, CEO in the mortgage industry said to me on a phone call, he's like, Mark, we were just hoping you would be a voice for the industry. And I said to him, you know, I'm an arm's length independent regulator. You you have lobbyists, you pay, that's their job. And, well, you know. I, I'm guessing it, at the end of the day, though, uh, just to push back, and sure. then not, not even a pushback, just an observation, yeah. that uh, there was so much support provided to the economy that ultimately supported the housing market. You know, all the checks that were cut, uh, all the other support, uh, uh, you don't have to pay your Credit so card bill. If I could preempt where I think you're going with okay. this, because, because I know you and I had very different um, had very had very different public estimates of forbearance. Right. And this actually ended up being 
a lucky coincidence. So uh, I had hired Lynn Fisher, who I think, you know, and she career and we had stood up our, you know, I'll, I'll say as a shocker. Um, when I walked into FHFA, there was no housing market, housing price forecast function. They completely relied on whatever Fannie and Freddie told them. And, and again, you know, the primary risk to Fannie, Freddie and the federal banks is fundamentally macroeconomic and housing market. They did none of that. There was no separate research division. So we set that up. We opened the doors to our new research division, you know, January 1 on 2020. You know, so and where I'm going with this is we went and back forecast, like, you know, what do we think forbearances will get up to based on unemployment? And it's we forget. I mean, I know there's a narrative and I'll be frank. I, I, I strongly disagree with this narrative that somehow we didn't do much or do anything post 2008. My view is we spent a lot. We spent it poorly. We created lots of disincentives. We expanded unemployment insurance. So the point being is that, you know, the argument of um, we got our estimates right by luck because a lot of assistance was provided. The response for me is that those estimates were based on the assumption of lots of assistance being provided because they were historic backcast on periods in which lots of assistance was provided. I do recognize we did provide more assistance this time around. A lot so, more. I mean, like orders of magnitude more, like 25% of GDP more. I mean, that's it, a lot more. Exactly. So yeah. I would say it's certainly a tough empirical question. You know, I think it's probably fair to say, you know, like, you know, our internal numbers, I mean, we really, so, you know, um, I'll, first I'll phrase it this way. You know, I, I was asked uh, third week of March, 2020, by Diane Olix, how bad do you think this is going to get? And I said, you know, by middle of May, I think Fannie and Freddie. CNBC, by the way, that's yeah, she's exactly. the the, the uh, I, and, housing person on CNBC. And, and even though, and I'm sure you've experienced this, my econ team was probably having heartburn. They were probably saying to themselves, don't give an answer. But but I gave a date and a number. And I said, you know, I think by middle of May, we're probably going to peak around 6% for the Fannie and Freddie book. And of course, FHA and other parts are much worse. And the Fannie and Freddie book did actually peak middle of May at about 6.7. So not far off. And the, But that was our median estimate. And we really looked at this and said, you know, our 90% confidence interval is maybe 15% tops. Um, and so for us, you know, we were prepared to act if it got worse. Um, we really weren't seeing things that would suggest that it would get to 30, 40. But you know, again, we were clear the whole time. If it gets worse, you know, we will change the stance. Um, but from, you know, we did a lot of data analysis on this. So I do want to emphasize, I think there's a sense of people just thinking, you know, Mark's an art, you know, Calabria's an ideologue is pulling, you know, just pulling numbers out of hats. No, there was a, there, there was a lot of analysis put into this. We looked at the range of outcomes. We looked at historical experience, um, you know, and I would say at the end of the day, I think the programs that we enacted, you know, if you kind of try to figure out a way to split split this, I'd probably say maybe 40 for 50 percent was driven by the um, extraordinary assistance given relative to other prices. Yeah. And that, you know, the rest of it was was within historical norms. Well, I highly re recommend the book. I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I think you actually... Took a couple of my quotes 
<laughs> in there I, somewhere. I, as I, I recall. I hope, I hope you, that, I yeah. you feel it was oh, fairly yeah, yeah. represented. No, I, I mean, obviously a lot to debate there, but but let's, because we're running out of time, I promise we keep this to an hour. And let's roll, we took kind of like a historical perspective. Let's like like look forward now. And there's two things I want to quickly bring up. One is around going back to the non-bank mortgage industry, the folks that you know you uh, had a lot of pressure to bail out. There's still the dominant force in the mortgage finance space. There are 80, 85% of the loans made by Fannie and Freddie and FHA. I want to get your quick sense of, of the risks there. I mean, there's a lot of concern, still concern. As you said, they have pretty thin balance sheets, as you said, and very little capital. Is that something that we should be worried about, uh, you know, uh, going forward? It is something we should be worried about. And I'll say from what I saw, counterparty risk management, at, you know, via the Fannie and Freddie lens. I mean, a lot of these non-banks are, you know, bundle of contracts relying on outside vendors and subservicers. And it's it's not, I mean, I'm not knocking on them. Um, mm -hmm. It's not something that should give you a tremendous amount of Comfort, but that said, you know, I, I will say I think we've got the abilities to deal with. Like, I mean, we were lucky um, that we didn't have a number of them fail. And as I mentioned in the book, we dealt with Ditech failed in the fall of 2019. We we had just come through dealing with a, a large servicer failure. So, and Fannie and Freddie have dealt with servicer failures in the past. So this wasn't something that was untried. The question was, would it be in mass? And we never, that's the difference is looking at the balance sheets, they were maybe at half a dozen right in the line, but there, and, and, and again, right in the line, you know, there was never any evidence that you would have dozens go down and that's a different animal. And so I think that's the question. I think a, the system can handle the failure of one, two, three large non-bank services. Can the system handle the failure of 20, yeah. you know, and I, and, and that's a separate set of questions. And of course, there have been counterparty standards that have been put in place. Um, I know you and others have suggest perhaps giving them access to the federal home loan banks. I, I, one of the starting points that I, that, that I come from is that, and again, I'm not anti-non-bank. I think it's been often misinterpreted by the industry. We had started a working group among regulators in, the, in late 2019 that unfortunately the pandemic kind of swamped where basically mortgage bank reform working group and because you can't just fix this on the Fannie and Freddie side, the reason there are there are a myriad of reasons that depositories have left the mortgage business. Of course, though, it's important to keep in mind depositories do as much servicing as the non-banks. And of course, they're not facing liquidity pressures either because they have access to federal home loan bank advances or the discount window. And of course, as COVID started going, they had record inflows of deposits. And my approach is rather than throwing our hands up and saying, well, we're never going to get depositories back in the mortgage market in a big way, I think we really need to address the problems that have driven depositories out of the mortgage market. I don't think that's a healthy. So rather than just expand the safety net, I'd rather look at um, issues just that are reduce their share, get the banks back in lending. Yeah. And again, it's not because at the end of the day, we actually haven't driven the banks out because as you recall, Almost all of these non-banks function with warehouse lines of credits for these very same sure. depositories. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, we've created this complexity. Now, I do want to, you know, for the listeners, give a plug. Um, you know, the, you and, and, and Jim and a couple of your colleagues, Jim Parent, have written two, you know, wonderful papers on the federal loan bank system that there's much I agree with. The, the part I disagree with, the expanding the footprint, 
but I want to emphasize a couple of points because I think oh, on that case, just as a, just to make it clear, under certain conditions, right? I mean, exactly big conditions. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So there's a couple, and these are these papers are both published by the Urban Institute, and people can find them on the website there. A one of the critically important points that that you make in that paper that I fully agree with is that the purpose of the federal home loan bank system is to be a provider of liquidity in a stressed environment. And a point I make in the book is that's exactly what they did in March 2020. You saw advances mm -hmm. increase by 30% before the Fed or the Treasury did anything. Mm -hmm. So it's a much quicker uh, advanced network. The federal home banks worked as they were supposed to work in COVID, and they did it correctly. And I, and I, and Coming from me, that should mean a lot because I'm not one to applaud. It, it, it means regular. an awful lot. Yeah, even Chris doesn't agree with that. So that's, that's, <laughs> so, that's great. So the part of the, the part of the debate I think that that's missed here is somehow the debate has raised these questions about well, you know, why are they doing as lender of last resort? And I'm like, the Federal Home Loan Bank system was created to be a lender of last resort, of course, to thrifts who could not access the Federal Reserve System, and that's no longer the case. So on one hand, the original purpose of the federal home loan system is no longer with us, but the statutory design, and during my tenure, I repeatedly said to the banks, it's like, your primary existence is because you're going to supposed to provide liquidity in, time, in times of stress. Don't do anything to screw that up. That's repeatedly what they heard from me. And so I am puzzled by the conversation that's moved toward well, you know, they're not supposed to be lenders of last resorts. I think this is primary being driven by the Fed. But yeah, the statutory history, the statutory language all says, actually, that's why they were created. Uh, in that, I'm like, we are so in agreement here. Oh, that is so cool. Uh, so the, the other yeah. thing that I think that I really love that you guys did, um, because I've said this repeatedly, so it was nice to see some math here. You know, people have, uh, you know, pointed to Silvergate and SVB and, you know, and, and it's mm -hmm. a case of, um, well, I could say survivorship bias, but perhaps it's non-survivorship bias. That's really, people aren't asking the question of what about the the depositories that don't fail because they got advances. Mm -hmm. And I really like the fact that, you, and I've said that repeatedly to people, and I like the fact that you guys put that in, you, you put some numerics behind it, you put a, reg a logic regression behind it. Mm -hmm. Um but to parse that out that I think is important where I would take the reform. I don't know if you noticed Chris is smiling over here. I don't know. So <laughs> work. I mean, it was so I, I enjoyed the I haven't run a logit in quite a while and over a decade. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I, just, <laughs> right. I, I, I like the way the paper was done, partly because it did confirm Maybe. my priors, which is always <laughs> that's awesome. always helpful. Yeah. Um, and so there are two, you know, a couple of elements of the paper that I thought were also important to me. A the the that what really matters for banks is the increase in liquidity in terms of uh, stress, because that reduced the chance of failure. But on the other hand, banks that relied on federal home loan bank advances, essentially as day to day liquidity management, had higher right. chances of failure. Right. And again, reinforces my point that the banks, I mean, in fact, all the GSEs, Fannie Freddie, federal home banks really are created to be counter cyclical. And the problem with them is over time, they've become more pro-cyclical. Hmm. So the conversation really should be, how do we get these entities to be more um, counter-cyclical? And then the other point I think is important that I take away from that paper is that the liquidity for a stress environment is really important for the for the small institutions and not as much for the big institutions. I'm aware of the debates about, you know, Wells and Chase, you know, pay the overhead 
But to me, I think it's a reasonable part of the conversation of how concentrated the advances are among the wells and chases, whether that's really an appropriate outcome for the system. So I would quite frankly probably throw um, anybody over 10 billion, I would probably throw out of the membership. It was up to me. Again, it's mm -hmm. up to Congress mm -hmm. and really have it focus on small institutions. And then I don't want to open up a whole debate, but uh, just as a reminder you know, the implied guarantee is not something that Congress ever intended or gave to the banks. It's something that market expectations have created. And I worry that part of the conversation about the federal banks takes this view of here's this subsidy. How do we distribute it more equitably when the fact is that was never a subsidy that was intended? Of course, the, the, the tax relief and other things are intended and provide subsidies. And so, um, Rather than increasing the affordable housing contribution, honestly, I would get rid of it all together and I would subject the banks to the corporate tax code and they pay into the general fisc like everybody else because um, I'm not really a fan of earmarked off-budget spending. But fundamentally, my worry is that the conversation takes the implied guarantee as something to be spent. And quite frankly, if you think about it, the value of the implied guarantee is a function of the probability of failure because the implied guarantee only has value to debt holders if there's a failure. And so to some extent, the larger the implied guarantee is, by almost definition, the worst job the regulator must be doing. Because mm. your job as the regulator is to try to minimize the outcome of failure. So I was a little disappointed that the conversation doesn't really focus on um, you know, how do you reduce the probability of distress in the system, which therefore reduces the implied guarantee. And lastly, I want to say, since I know we're going to run time, as you recall, I worked on the statute that created FHFA. Um, Congress very clearly intended both with Fannie and Freddie and the federal home banks to minimize, if not try to reduce the implied guarantee. And, and I and I feel like the debate's gone the wrong direction on that. But I really do recommend uh, those two papers, I think, are very well done uh, and raise important questions, even if there's some areas I disagree with. I think they, they raise some core questions that I don't see being raised necessarily by others in the debate. Well, uh, I, I want to thank you. I want to say two things. One, thank you for that. That was very kind of you. Uh, I came prepared to have a big debate about the Federal Home Loan Bank so that you completely took me off guard there. I, well, I, I, I didn't I, know I, what your views on that were, but I was expecting that you had a different perspective, but that, that's well, good I mean, maybe to confirm your priors, um, if we didn't have the federal home loan banks today, I wouldn't create them, but we okay. do. Okay. So, okay. So, 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 okay. so how do I deal with the current current mess? And that's fair. That's fair. I mean, I, I have this kind of metaphor in my mind that this, the, the, system, the liquidity system in the, in, the financial in the financial system is basically this complex rubric cube of plumbing, you know, pipes going everywhere. And if you try to pull the pipes out at this point, you're just going to create a real mess. That, that's why, to me, I think you trim the system like, you know, Wells and Chase are going to be fine if you can come out of the system. You know, I, and I do think while my, you know, first best preference is, you know, I guess I'll put it this way, you know, as a reminder, a third of banks have disappeared since Dodd-Frank. Of course, mm -hmm. some of it's merger and there mm -hmm. were trends in declining and it gets back to the earlier part of our conversation. One of the real problems in the housing sector today 
is the difficulty of getting acquisition development construction lending. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not knocking on the big guys, but this is primarily a function of community banks, regional banks. And I really worry that the consolidation and the disappearance of many community institutions in America has reduced the availability of construction development lending. Mm-hmm. And so to me, the rationale for the system, it's really a second best argument, if you will. You're trying to use the liquidity provision of the system to offset what I think have been policy changes that have made it much more difficult for community banks to survive. In, 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 but you can trim the system by eventually getting rid of the big guys and being focused on community institutions. Yes, that would probably push some consolidation among the federal home loan banks so that they could cover the overhead better. But there's really not. I mean, I, you know, this question came up, I think, on my first day from some of the bank presidents. Well, what do you think about consolidation? I'm like, you know, I got a, I got 10 other problems that are bigger to deal with. I got thousand to one leverage Fannie and Freddie. Guys want to merge. I will be your partner and help facilitate it. If one of you fails, there's certainly going to be a merger. But at the end of the day, I, I raise that to say, you know, 11's certainly not the right number. I mean, the system is too fragmented uh, for efficiency. You know, I think it's a really hard political battle for the regulator to take because obviously, whatever city loses, you're going to hear from their senator and their. Um, so I, so it's it's not an efficient system the way the geograph- geographic layout is today. I think that's ripe for um, reform, but I also think it might not be worth the political trouble you have to go through. Um, we didn't even get into the fact that um, half of my conversations by you know minutes with the boards and management were about their executive compensation, and so those are there are problematic practices at the bank. There are safety and soundness concerns. But the point about, you know, these are functionally supposed to be providers of liquidity to community institutions in times of stress is 100 percent right. And that's really where most of the debate should be. Well, uh, we have the given that all of what you just said, uh, we have the fodder for the next time we have you on the podcast. <laughs> there are a few things I'd like to take take you up on, but we need to call it a podcast. I, I will say we were really deep into the weeds here. Uh, so the, some of the listeners probably may have had some difficulty following along, particularly on the federal home loan banks. But I would say uh, you might want to go back and listen to the podcast we did with Teresa Bazemore. Teresa is the uh, president of, I think president is the right word. For or of course, the, the listeners can read the papers you've done. Yeah, or, yeah exactly. They're, they're very accessible. And of course, they could read my book. So it's all yeah, there. You go. All there. All there for you. Uh, and of course, if you have questions, you can fire away too, listener. You know, sure. We're all ears. would love to have the questions. Uh, Mark, I want to thank you. Really, uh, uh, very informative, and uh, as I said, you really lay out a you know very cogent, reasonable case, and I really appreciate the, your your clarity and transparency. And with that, we are going to call this a podcast, dear listener. Talk to you next week. Take care now. <music>